This is a GRDC podcast. When it comes to maximising the productivity of irrigated crops, a common misconception is that it's as simple as adding water and lots of nitrogen fertiliser. But new research is proving this equation just doesn't stack up. Hi there, I'm Hilary Sims. The Optimising Irrigated Grains project, made possible through GRDC investment, is focused on pushing the yield potential of irrigated crops. Now in its third year, researchers have two seasons of impressive agronomy data under their belt, helped along by back-to-back mild spring conditions, which has seen them achieve some pretty exceptional yields. Far Australia Managing Director Nick Poole is leading the project, and he joins me now to share the key findings. Nick starts by describing the research sites for context. We are looking primarily, not exclusively, but primarily at two research sites, one in Finlay in southern New South Wales under overhead and surface irrigation and another in a slightly warmer climate further down the Murray at Kerrang. That site is on a grey clay as opposed to Finlay that's on a red duplex soil. And those are the two primary sites, but we have smaller amounts of research taking place in southeast South Australia and also Tasmania under irrigation. The project encapsulates work on six grain crops, including one summer crop, which is grain maize, but it includes faba beans, canola, chickpeas, durum and barley. Nick, what are your thoughts on the perception that hyper-yielding productivity under irrigation is as simple as just adding water and lots of nitrogen fertiliser? I suppose being involved also with the hyper-yielding crops project, we've got this ideal opportunity to compare some of the environments. And I think one of the things to realise is that with two very mild springs, or certainly 2021, irrigation or irrigated crops do have high yield potential. But it's certainly in terms of trying to make sure that we've got some realism around yield potential. It's not just as easy as adding lots of artificial fertiliser and water. Several things come to mind, but principally, remember that a lot of the parts of the Murray and Murrumbidgee irrigation systems are clearly a lot warmer environments than what we would be getting further south in the genuine high rainfall zone, cooler climates, longer growing seasons. So heat stress during grain fill is a key reason that it's not just as easy as saying we will replicate those yields from further south by adding more water. I think the other aspect which is really interested us is that despite there being higher yields with irrigation, we actually find that it's not necessarily about large amounts of artificial nitrogen fertiliser, for example, being added to feed higher yield potential. In fact, we found that there is an upper limit to what those crops, whether they're cereals or canola, will actually respond to. So I think one of the things is actually a fertile farming system that's able to actually feed the nitrogen demands in those really good seasons that's important with irrigation, just as it is with any dryland cropping scenario. 
And so let's bring that in now with reference to the outcomes for the past couple of years, 2020 and 2021. What levels of yield have you achieved through the research at those two sites? Well, perhaps we've had the most amazing couple of springs for actually looking at what that upper end potential could be. And we've observed it thinly, crops of canola in experimental plots getting to that five tonne a hectare level. Crops of faber beans that have really exceeded our expectation at levels of seven tonne a hectare and above. We've had Durham, that's actually yielded between uh, 8 and uh, 10 tonnes a hectare. Even in some of the warmer environments at Kerrang, we've had excellent yields, 7 tonne a hectare in Faber beans, and again, towards 10 tonne a hectare with Durham. So there's no doubt that these last two mild springs have helped us really realise what the upper end potential is. But in some ways, we know that our spring was much, much milder, particularly in 2021 through the month of October, than we would normally experience in some of those regions. And Nick, you just mentioned achieving five tonne a hectare in canola. What have been the major steps forward to get that yield and to get that level? Well, it's been a number of factors that we've noted that actually incrementally lead us to those high yields. The first, as I mentioned earlier, is a really good fertile farming system that enables the crop when it's growing with that moist soil to actually tap into soil nitrogen reserves that might be throughout the whole rooting zone rather than just being surface fed nitrogen fertilizer. So we haven't, interestingly enough, found that crops will respond to much more than 200, 225 kilos of nitrogen fertilizer at the upper end. So it's not been about huge amounts of artificial nitrogen being applied but it clearly depends on a farming system that already has residual nitrogen within that soil that actually helps us feed whenever the crop is growing. So that's, I think, an important aspect that people would instinctively say, well, look, at five tonne a hectare, we have to feed that. And that's true, we do. But our attempts to feed it purely with artificial fertiliser haven't actually been that successful. But nonetheless, 200, 225 kilos of nitrogen and, dare I say, a wetter soil that's more efficient at releasing any residual nitrogen has been a key secret there. I think the other aspect that really goes hand in hand with that is the germplasm that we've been experimenting with. And we've looked at two hybrids, a Roundup Ready and a Triazine Tolerant or TT hybrid, And that comparison of that germplasm has resulted in us at Finley, for example, over the last two years, both under surface and overhead irrigation, having an advantage of averaging about 0.65 tonnes a hectare. Now, that's quite a big advantage to a Roundup Ready over a TT hybrid. So that's one major step forward, combined with that aspect that It's not just about artificial fertiliser as well. And when it comes to achieving five tonne per hectare, 
it's not just about the germplasm. It's also important to get the optimum canopy structure under irrigation in terms of plant population. What are your thoughts and observations on that from the trial results so far? Yes, it's very interesting and in part perhaps counterintuitive, but what we found even with the higher cost of hybrid seed is that over the last two years with these high yield potentials, we've actually found that within our experimentation, it was better to grow a hybrid crop that was perhaps thicker than the normal stated optimum than thinner. And we describe these effects as coming with irrigation as almost being that you get magnifying effects of yield responses. So just like you may have a quarter of a ton difference between germplasm and dryland, then under irrigation, given a good season, that starts to be a magnification such that you might get double that effect. And what we're finding in the canopy structures is that there are significant yield penalties for hybrid crops sown at the end of April that are too thin as opposed to a crop that might be too thick. So to give you an example of that, crops that were having plant populations between 10 and 20 plants a square metre were significantly inferior to crops between that 20 plants and 30 plants a square metre. But there was also no significant downside to actually plant populations around 40 plants a square metre with those hybrids. And that's despite the fact of building in the extra cost of seed. And so in our experimentation, we've actually found even at just $700 a tonne, and at the moment, The differences are greater than that with some of the forward pricing. But we've actually found that you can get differences of $500 a hectare just on actually the penalty for getting the canopy structure too thin as opposed to too thick. In fact, both with the TT hybrid and the Roundup Ready over these last two good seasons, our optimum most profitable population has actually just been above 40 plants a square metre, resulting from 80 seeds per square metre planted. And I say this is counterintuitive because we know just how amazing canola is at its compensatory growth when we get the crop too thin. We know that it can compensate. But what we found in irrigation is that there's a price seemingly to pay for that. And Nick, how about the optimum plant populations for some of the other crops that you've been trialling? I think that faber beans actually fall into an even more extreme example than canola in this particular case. So in work that we've done on faber beans, we've also found these sort of magnifying effects from getting the canopy structure wrong. And again, dropping down to that 10 to 15 plants a square metre has actually resulted in significant yield penalties with Faber beans under irrigation at both our Kerrang and our Finley site. And I think that this is perhaps a key learning that relates all the way back to establishment. And it may seem very, very simple and straightforward, but We know that in sowing beans, 
the large size of the seed means that at normal sowing speeds, we perhaps can't necessarily put the seed in the ground that we'd like to at the speed at which we're sowing. And so one of the aspects that really comes out here is that the plant populations at that 20 to 30 plants a square metre Although you may have to drill slower or seed slower to achieve those higher populations, what we're actually finding in the experimentation at both Finley and Kerrang is that that higher range, 25, 30 plants a square metre, has not let us down. And even going above that 30 plants hasn't resulted in any significant loss in productivity and is the reverse of the opposite, where we drop too low. So these are differences that perhaps in dryland may not show or may be very small unless you've got very high yield potential. But there's certainly some findings from these last two years of better yields out of Faber's under irrigation. And let's turn now to disease management, noting that under high rainfall zone, longer season environments... Disease management seems to be one of the most important aspects in maintaining a high yield. What have you found from the research plots over the past two years? It's a project that has allowed me to, again, look at some of these comparisons between the high rainfall zone and the hyper-yielding crops project and optimising irrigated grains. And what we're finding is in 2021 was a classic example. In southern Victoria... From disease management alone, we are increasing yield by over three tonne a hectare with some of the better fungicide chemistry. But meanwhile, in our work that we've conducted in the Optimising Irrigated Grains project, we can find yield responses nowhere near that exciting. In fact, we're struggling to see disease management being the key lever in these last two seasons. Now, clearly cultivar susceptibility comes into this, but what we actually think is happening here is that although overhead irrigation might make the crop wetter for a period of time, or that surface irrigation increases the humidity in those crop canopies, it's not having the same disease-inducing effects that a number of days of wet weather or more disease-conducive weather might have in the higher rainfall. In other words, in those higher rainfall zones, you get poor weather conditions that themselves seem to lend themselves to more disease buildup, whereas under irrigation in perhaps these Murray, Murrumbidgee regions, whilst you can't take your eye off of canopy density and any encouragement of disease it might have, drier sunny days that allow canopies to dry out are not giving us the same kind of level of responses. So Faber beans is a good example where we can't really say after two years of very high yields that disease management is a must to get right. And that's not to say we take our eye off of it, but it doesn't seem to be as huge a factor as it is in the genuine high rainfall zones, cooler environments further south. I think the other crop that's really surprised us in this sense is canola. Um, we felt sure that having seen evidence of aerial black plague 
And in fairness, we haven't seen high levels of sclerotinia, and that may change the findings. But with very obvious aerial blackleg, we're still not getting large responses to fungicides in canola. And we've been using Benito, thinking perhaps a more susceptible variety. We might see more evidence of differences between fungicide strategies, but that hasn't actually occurred. So at this moment in time, we're not ignoring these factors. We've got more research to do this coming year. But in those two particular crops, it's perhaps not been as significant an agronomic lever as we thought it might have been. Nick, we've had a lot of focus in this discussion about break crops, but what about durum wheat? What sort of learnings have you had so far? Yes, interesting question, Hilary. We have found with durum that in many ways it's almost the most ideal crop to grow under irrigation. We know that it's a crop that requires extremely high proteins to get the highest grades and the highest qualities. And we've actually found within the experimentation that we've done that you don't, again, need excessive amounts of nitrogen, such as 300 kilos of N or anything like that. But what we have found is that the crop can be incredibly efficient with perhaps later timings of nitrogen than we might normally recognise for cereal crops. And so applications of fertiliser in that second node to flag leaf emergent stage have actually been giving us some really good protein responses, but it's still early enough to actually give us increases in yield. Now, in dryland scenarios, it's very difficult to get the uptake guaranteed from those later end doses that would give you the yield response or give you the necessarily the protein response combined with that yield response. But under irrigation, where we have more control over the uptake of our nitrogen through the use of water, we've actually found that these later timings of nitrogen have worked particularly efficiently at increasing the grades and protein levels of durum wheat. And I think that goes hand in hand with another aspect, and that is that we know some durum varieties are particularly susceptible to lodging where the crop falls over. And we know that these later timings of N are efficient at giving us yield and protein, but do not carry the same level of risk in terms of inducing lodging that, say, those tillering doses of nitrogen or early stem elongation doses of nitrogen do. So we've actually found that there's aspects of agronomy, particularly the way in which we feed nitrogen, that actually work very well with durum under irrigation. Well, it sounds, Nick, like the two years has already delivered so much insight on growing crops under irrigation. What would your key messages be to growers that they can take away and apply on farm? What key messages would you like them to know at this point in time from the research? Well, I think first and foremost, we have had two exceptional seasons for looking at irrigated grains, which brings us right the way back to where we started the interview, Hilary, which is 
talking about realism in terms of yield potential. We know that these last two springs have been exceptionally mild, so they are, dare I say, in a lot of regions, atypical for the amount of heat stress that we might normally experience in these crops. So a degree of realism when we chase higher productivity, but look at the attention to detail. And it may seem extremely routine and boring, But what we've actually found is that simple things like canopy structure, germplasm and the water monitoring itself. And we haven't really in this case discussed the actual function of irrigation, but making sure that we're monitoring our irrigation in terms of our soil moisture levels so that we know what our refill points are that we're targeting with the infrastructure that we've got. But as with so many things, not usually one magic ingredient. And that magic ingredient isn't just applying water. It's monitoring that water and then looking at trying to tie that with your key agronomic inputs. So it's not as simple as just putting water on uh, for high yields. And it's not just as simple as a huge amount of artificial fertilizer to actually feed that potential. It's far wider than that. But what we've been through is some of those initial key learnings, some of which have surprised us. That was Far Australia Managing Director Nick Poole, sharing some of the key learnings from the Optimising Irrigated Grains investment. I'm Hilary Sims, and thanks for listening.